Welcome to Looks Like New on KGN News, It's the Economy. I'm Skyler Heap. This is a show that asks old questions about new technology, even addressing questions that should have been asked a long time ago. We join you on the fourth Thursday of every month on the radio, or you can listen online as a podcast. Looks Like New is a production of the Media Economies Design Lab at CU Boulder. Today's episode is a special one, and I am so excited to share it with you. You will be listening to the first in a series of sessions on open social media, hosted by our lab and generously supported by Colorado Rewild. During this session, we'll be hearing the origin stories that shape these spaces from three prominent speakers. This webinar was facilitated by myself and Nathan Schneider, director of the Media Economies Design Lab, and further supported on the technology backend by Riley McGee. Without further ado, I'll let Nathan introduce you to the intriguing spaces of open social media. I'm Nathan Schneider. I'm an assistant professor of media studies at CU Boulder, and I direct the Media Economies Design Lab. I'm also an enthusiast of the topic that we're going to be covering today. I was a co-founder of Social.coop, which is a Mastodon instance. I've played around with a lot of the emerging networks that are forming today. And with this series, I hope that we'll be able to go deeper into the meaning and possibilities of uh, some of these emerging networks that are posing a challenge to the longstanding habit we've gotten into of large corporate, almost monopolies controlling our online social lives. In the series that this session begins, we're going to be exploring in particular how to build alternative networks for civic spaces, the civic spaces that we so deeply need. We'll be thinking about social movements, nonprofit organizations, journalism, and governments too. What can these kinds of institutions do to promote and advance a more healthy civic online social space? But first, we wanted to begin with the origin stories. We wanted to begin with some of the people who've been involved in shaping the development of the emerging social networks, uh, uh, networks like uh, Mastodon and and, the activity pub protocol that that powers it, Blue Sky, um, and and some others, including Noster and, and, and beyond. There's a lot of different designs out there. And one thing that's really fascinated me is the way in which people's experience, the designer's experience has shaped the development of those networks has shaped choices being made in those in those networks. For instance, I use Mastodon, a Twitter-like open network in my classes. I, I we self-host on our own servers a version of this social network, and students often ask, you know, why are some of the features different from what they might be used to on Twitter or Instagram or TikTok? And that becomes an occasion to reflect at least my limited knowledge of some of the experiences that designers have had that went into those designs. But with this session, I hope that we can go much deeper into how these networks are designed differently and why. Now to our speakers. First, we'll hear from Christine Lemmer-Weber, who played an integral role in developing the ActivityPub protocol that serves 
as a foundation for the group of federated apps called the Fediverse. Uh, she's now CTO of the open source project Sprightly and continues working on ActivityPub, participating on Mastodon, and also hosting a really excellent podcast called Foss and Crafts, which dis- discusses the intersection of free and open source software and, and crafting in, in older and more physical ways. It's really a joy. Our second speaker is Evan Henshaw Plath, or Rabble. Um, Rabble was a lead engineer for the initial development of Twitter, making him a pioneer in modern social media. He's been a critic of mainstream platforms. And for years, I've had the pleasure of running into him in spaces around developing alternative cooperative kinds of networks. He developed Planetary recently, built on the Scuttlebutt protocol, which is a really fascinating peer-to-peer social network design. And currently from Wellington, New Zealand, he is the founder of Nost.Social, built on the Noster protocol. Third, we'll hear from Golda Velez. Golda is an experienced software engineer who's contributed to major companies and founded some herself, such as uh, What's Cooking, a social platform that builds communities for healthy cooperation. She was involved early on in some of the conversations and development of Blue Sky. And so she could talk about many other things, but in particular, she's going to speak um, from that experience. So I'd like to invite the um, speakers each to share some, you know, opening stories about how their experience shapes their their designs and their thinking in these in these emerging networks. And then I'll turn it over to Skylar to lead the discussion. Christine, could you take it away? Sure. Hello. I'm Christine, as said. So, I mean, the number of stories that could be said are large and varied, as I'm sure are for everybody who's in this group. And, you know, picking what specifically to say can be difficult. I guess I'll say that anytime there is a major project, like what we're looking at with, you know, the current direction of the Federated Social Web, or really anything, it's very easy for certain people to end up in the spotlight and and other people's to be missed. Everybody who works on these things sometimes feels on both sides of that. So I'd like to recognize that the way that I got into ActivityPub, sometimes I get overclaimed in that I didn't write the entire spec, right? The work started because I was really impressed with kind of the first major generation of decentralized social web stuff, which a lot of people aren't even aware of that in, you know, the kind of uh, late aughts, as they say. So there was OStatus, and it was connected to StatusNet as kind of the premier implementation. In some ways, the way that I think ActivityPub is most well-known for Mastodon. And um, I was really impressed with all that work. You know, it was a attempting to build a decentralized Twitter, and interestingly, came out not too long after Twitter. Uh, and I know that Evan Prodromo, who was kind of the lead of that effort, knew many of the people at Twitter and, you know, was, um, and I think, um, and I'll leave it to Rabble to make more commentary about, you know, kind of the vision and how things may have changed. Um, but I was really inspired by that, right? And when um, I was inspired enough to start a project called Media Goblin, which um, in many ways has not succeeded as a software project, um, it is usable, but it was trying to be a decentralized YouTube slash Flickr slash everything. Um, and um, but what and, and we had working software, but we needed the component for the things to talk to each other. And the way I really got involved was um, I had I, I heard that Evan. Prodromo was co-chairing the um, social web working group at the W3C. And, you know, I said, oh, could I be involved to make sure that, you know, my voice is heard, right? Not, not 
thinking, you know, and so at that time, Jessica Tallon, um, who along with me became the co-editors of the specification, I said to her, she was, she was basically working for me um, and implementing our decentralized social networking stuff. I said, well, we'll just show up for an hour a week and make sure our stuff is represented, right? And then the, anybody who works on this stuff knows that, you know, like revolutions are run by the people who show up. Um, and, the, uh, and so next thing we know, we were, you know, we were suddenly, you know, co-authors, co-editors. Um, but it was Aaron Shepard who had taken what, Evan Perdromo had written up in an initial API write-up for Pump.io and turned it into what became ActivityPub as the first draft. And then Jessica Tallon, who took that and transformed it further. And I bring this up because I think that um, right now, um, it's it's something I think about a lot is um, how much and how little it's important to talk about attribution. In some ways, it's not matter at all who worked on these types of things. On the other hand, I think sometimes people's voices feel left out. And so I really want to capture the people who worked on things. Uh, Amy Guy also did a tremendous amount of work on the specification, and so did many other people who were in the social web working group. Um, and one of the... Um, and one of the interesting things that happens with all of this is that uh, right now, I think um, the, the current version of the Fediverse is most well known for um, Mastodon picking it up and implementing it and uh, being the thing that maybe mainly people have uh, seen used. Um, and I think that's interesting. Um, and a lot of people get bitter about this and, and expect me to be bitter about this. And I promise I'm only bitter a little bit because um, I think that um, the reality is that it's very hard for people coming into something to have a whole view of the entire space. How could most people have a view of all of the history that went into it? It's important to me because I was part of the history and I, and I, and I want to see people's voices represented. And I do think that's important. Um, you know, in technology, Steve Jobs gets accredited for all sorts of things he did not do, right? But, and um, sometimes I get really annoyed by that. And then sometimes I realize, oh, right. You know, what, what ends up happening is, is that, um, people have a limited view into a certain part of the world. And, um, and, and it's, it's natural that people end up, you know, applying stuff to only a limited view of, of who they see participating in that world because they can only have that much information. So um, one, of the, one of the things that I will say is that um, I'm grateful to have any success at all, right? And I'm grateful that any of us are having any success at all. Um, when I started working on this stuff, I felt like it was impossible to get anybody to care about it, right? And I felt like I was probably going to work on stuff that would never get anywhere. And that would be, um, it, but it was really important to try. Um, and, and I would explain to, you know, I'd have family members who said, you know, I just don't understand what you're saying, but I tell people that you're working on impressive things. Um, and all of that changed when uh, Twitter got bought by Elon Musk and suddenly everybody knew about uh, the, the work that um, we were doing, even if they didn't know who was involved in doing it. Um, I think we're in an interesting moment. We are in an interesting moment where there is attention and interest for this kind of work. Uh, and I'm really excited and grateful for that. I don't know how well that qualifies under the stories aspect of what you asked. Um, it's maybe more meta story than anything else, but I think that's my opening contribution. Thank you so much. It's a great way to, to get us started. Rabble, do you want to take it on next? 
Sure. Thanks so much, Christine. Like, I think the one of the points that you were making is really important is that it's very easy to talk about these platforms through the lens of a hero's journey of the founder, of the one person who has the great idea who creates it. And if you look at the history of it, that's not at all true. It's always been a community of people, even when they are for-profit companies that have a normal investment structure and a CEO, it's been a community of people. Twitter was always much more a community of people than it was a company, and that's why people felt affinity towards it. My own history of this stuff goes back to the 1990s when I was trying to figure out how to help activist movements create their own media. And I helped start a group called Indie Media where our byline was Be the Media. And the idea was that people involved in social change should be able to publish their own stuff online. And so we did live streaming of protests in the 1990s from the streets in the middle of clouds of tear gas. And we pioneered a bunch of web radio. We pirated, pirated TV, you know, created pirate TV stations. That work was the proto-social media. And that work led people into talking about blogging. And talking about blogging and figuring out how to publish your own stuff led into people attaching MP3 files to RSS feeds, which is how people are blogging, which is where we get RSS. It's one community of thing, adding on another component, another component. What can I do with it? How can I change it? How can I evolve it? The RSS work, which became podcasting, led to the, you know, the idea that you could send RSS feeds over text messages which is where TextMob comes from, which was a, a project in 94, 95, where people were using small text message groups to coordinate protests. That project is what was the direct inspiration for Odeo pivoting to create Twitter. And Twitter at the time was very much an open web project. You know, there was no distinguishing between a user and a, a client or an API access. And there was open RSS and there were a bunch of open feeds. And so in by 2008, we actually launched a version of federated Twitter over XMPP as a protocol. And you could go back and forth between Jaiku and Twitter. Again, Twitter was part of a larger ecosystem of many people experimenting with this stuff. Now, XMPP, it turned out was a mistake because it didn't scale, but folks at those meetings and working on it started saying, well, what if we had something that was more than just RSS? And then that's where you get to things like O status and activity streams, which are the protocols that lead to status.networking, which then leads to activity pub, which then leads to the Fediverse. So it's not like the development of the stuff that led to the Fediverse is different than the development of the stuff that led to Twitter. They both come out of the same sort of pool of people creating and building stuff. And, and it's not like from the very day we started working on Twitter, we didn't realize that it was a problem that it was owned by a company. Like we knew it was a problem. We talked about it and we tried to build the protocols in a way that were open. The thing was, we exist within a system of funding where if it's within the structure of a company, within the structure of being able to get venture capital, that you can direct much more funding to it and get much more economies of scale, improve the user experience a lot more. And so the, the thing that takes off out of this community is Twitter and other things that take off, like Instagram takes off. You know, Kevin Sistrom, who created Instagram, was on the original team that created Twitter. Facebook copies the Twitter API. 
They copy the, you know, the chronological timeline. All this stuff goes on to 2007, 2008, 2009. By 2011, Twitter has changed management structure several times and people are saying, well, what's the business model? Twitter decides the business model is advertising and shuts down that open ecosystem, stops being part of the open social world so that they can control the ad market, so that they can make money on it, so that they can reward the advertisers and control that experience they have. And so what what that means is then we lose the openness, but that loss of openness is what drove a lot of people into ActivityPub and eventually created Mastodon. Around that same time, we have Dominic Tarr, who's an open source JavaScript developer, saying, maybe I could do some crypto stuff with this. Maybe I could, you know, not cryptocurrency, but maybe I could, you know, use signed messages or figure out a way to make this a distributed database. So he pulls ideas from this, you know, NoSQL database called CouchDB and says, what if I add a social layer on top of this? That becomes something called Secure Scuttlebutt. Secure Scuttlebutt exists in this sort of teeny little community of people experimenting with new protocols. And then all of the protocols that we've seen emerging in the last couple years, uh, Lens, DSNP and Project Liberty, Blue Sky, uh, Noster, Farcaster, all of these protocols are essentially derivatives of Secure Scuttlebutt. They pull all their ideas from Secure Scuttlebutt. And Secure Scuttlebutt pulled its ideas from, you know, O status. And so, you know, but what if you have the So we have this whole sort of rolling community of people experimenting with stuff, and it ends up always being on the edge. And every time we talked about it as a community, we're like, this is a major problem if someone can own this this is a civic space this is a public space and it's a problem if someone owns it because what if they stop being well-meaning but failing which is sort of how i would describe twitter's management and company before elon musk took over it was a bunch of people who deeply cared about it they were well-meaning and they were trying to deal with this inherent conflict between making a platform for advertisers and making a platform for the community once elon musk took over everybody realized that it was deeply problematic that our public space, that our civic spaces, that the way in which we define the evolution of cultural zeitgeist and ideas and news and politics can be controlled by a single billionaire. The richest man in the world can buy the public sphere. That was a, a, a geminal moment in how we changed because all of a sudden the rest of the world got to see what we'd been worried about what we've been talking about, what we've been caring about. And it created this flood, this flood of people into Mastodon, the flood of people into Scuttlebutt, into Farcaster, into Blue, Blue Sky once it eventually launched, into Noster, as people say, okay, what are the alternatives? <clears throat> and thankfully, we had been working on these alternatives. I would say the last thing I want to say is like, it's important to realize that in all of these protocols and all these platforms, power matters. Power matters a lot. And we can do a lot with a community of users, but the reason we haven't seen a platform co-op emerge as an alternative to manage this public space is because building it requires enough money to fail a lot. You need to do a lot of experiments. And the only source of funding that is able to take, you know, the risk 
that we have are these private venture capital markets. And so they push us into business models that give them the returns. You see a little bit of funding from the European Union through the Next Generation Internet Grants that work on the fundamental protocols, but it doesn't filter up. And so it's great we're talking about these things. I think it's really important to understand where they're going, but it's also important to realize that how it gets funded and who's getting it funded then reflects on who controls it. And we don't have a solution for that right now. So. I think that that hopefully that gives you a little bit of history of where we're at. It's a moment where we have tremendous amount of innovation. Finally, for the last decade, the lockdown system where only a few people at a few companies could take advantage of the social graph and build things on top of other people's things, that's going away. And so now we see incredible innovation, but we don't know what will happen to it. You know, will it stay open like podcasting stayed open or will it be enclosed like what happened with Twitter? So thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Looks Like New, a show that asks old questions about new tech. Stick with us. We'll be back soon. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio. We've been speaking with Christine Lemmerweber, Rabble, and Golda Velez about the origin stories of open social media. We'll turn it over to Golda now. Golda, go ahead. Yeah, thank you very much. So those are some pretty awesome intros. So it's interesting because I've been around a while. I mean, I've been around when I could call someone on the phone and they would say, what's an internet? I mean, literally, um, but I'm not going to talk about those origin stories because the origin story I'm going to talk about is the blue sky one, which is actually a very recent origin story and, and my, my takeaways from that. So I was in the room where it happened uh, very intentionally. I mean, when Jack announced blue sky, lots of people wanted to get in there. I was one of the many, many people who was like, oh, yeah, I want to be there. But I was kind of more persistent about it because... Um, you know, I, I do on the side, I was working risk at Postmates, so I was fighting bad actors in that sense, just regular credit card fraudsters. And I was also doing some human rights work where basically the way I got into it was when Jamal Khashoggi was killed and Saudis were denying it. My logical brain said, well, if they're denying they killed Khashoggi, maybe they should let the other guys out of jail. I wonder who those guys are. So I looked up who else was imprisoned in Saudi and I wrote some articles about them. And one of them um, was Abdurrahman al-Sadan, who happened to be the Twitter blogger who had been outed by a mole at Twitter. And his sister contacted me and said, oh, thanks for writing about my brother. Um, that's great. And so for a while, I would meet with her uh, weekly, and we would just do various types of leverage. And, and we actually got somewhere, I won't tell you that whole story. Um, we didn't get as far as we wanted, but uh, he did get undisappeared. Um, it's not a completely happy ending because he's still in Saudi prison for 20 years. Um, but I'm not going to get into that whole story. But that was why I knew Twitter was important. And that was why I knew that the way you handle people's identity is important and, and who owns these platforms is important. And also after that experience, I realized, oh, wow, like when there's stuff happening somewhere, you can just talk to people on Twitter. That's why Twitter was so valuable. It's like the Genta takes over on Myanmar, say hi to the guys in Myanmar. 
some Uyghur dude comes up and, on, on Twitter and says, hey, does anybody care about this? And I was like, why don't you talk to the State Department? And he's like, ah, there's a million of us. No one cares about us all. And it's like, no, no, we can care about at least a couple of you <laughs> and connect them to volunteers. And so, so you could just make these direct connections to people on the ground instead of reading about stuff in the newspaper. So because of that, I was very passionate, very persistent. I went to San Francisco. I interviewed at Twitter. I went and talked to people and I got myself into the room. So I just kind of talked my way in there. <laughs> and I, I got a chance to talk to Parag in one car ride and give him my take on it. He was like, oh, that might be good. Um, I did not wind up being the leader of Blue Sky. So obviously it wasn't quite good enough, um, but uh, it was interesting. So I'll read you the thing that Jack said. Uh, the first thing he said basically in the room was I was like, hey, dudes, okay, so what is the goal? And he said, the biggest and long-term goal is to build a durable and open protocol for public conversation, that it not be owned by any one organization, but contributed by as many as possible, and that it is born and evolved on the internet with the same principles. So he he had that kind of plan. And the durable was interesting, because at first, a couple of us thought, oh, durable, does that mean that the data has to stay around? And it's like, no, that means the protocol has to be durable. It has to be minimal. And I actually didn't look at the time when I started, but I'm going to give you a quick overview of learnings from being in that space. And one of them was like, oh, wow, because there's a lot of people already in this space. I mean, obviously, you know, Ravel, I think you were in it. I think you were in it from the beginning, SSB. And Christine, you were also in it from the beginning with Activity Pub. And so was Matthew with the Matrix uh, Foundation. I think, I think you and Jay were the ones who, who who pestered me over direct message until the point that I actually did join it. Yes. Okay. Um, okay. I was so grateful maybe- for that. Yes. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Good. So yeah, so there was there was about 20 people in the room originally. And then kind of Jay and I started inviting a few other people in the space. Um, and and I was realizing, wow, so there are these different approaches to it. Because I had been kind of in the semantic webby space and some other spaces, but I hadn't really been focused on the, the social media open space. And so so there were a couple of things uh that we learned from this. One of the one of the first things was sort of like the the conceptual kind of uh, architecture stuff is like there's people who are federated like activity pub who talk to each other. There's people who kind of gossip the data around, um, which I don't know if I'm saying that travel right, but I was thinking of SSB in terms of sort of gossiping the data from node to node. I might be might be wrong about that. And there's people who are like content addressed and like all the data is an IPFS or is a shared addressing space. So the ways that you share the data were different. Um, and then working on bridging those spaces, because my initial, like, let's be inclusive, let's include everything. And so we started dog fooding things and making bridges from Discord to Matrix. And I was like, wow, bridges are hard. Bridges aren't so much hard just because you have to transform from one format to another, but because the expectations on one side or another, the threading is different. The way, you know, the way spam is handled is different. The reporting is different. It basically gives you an entree to spammers. And that was the other kind of big learning uh, for me. Uh, which is just my conclusion, it wasn't necessarily a learning from this, was that one of the big drivers of centralization is attackers, because it takes, from the risk perspective, it takes a broad model to fight attackers. And so, like, you know, email is still quite a decentralized protocol, but many, many, many people have Gmail. And it's not because Gmail is great, it's because Gmail has a big database about spammers. And that takes some centralization to fight that. So it's kind of you get driven into a central, you know, thing to keep out the bad guys in a way. Um, I was most interested in, in shared moderation, um, which was actually one of the first things Matthew said from Matrix was like, I don't know if we need a new comms protocol, but we do need shared moderation. <laughs> so so that might be a takeaway. Um, and another one from the space, again, we wanted to be inclusive, wanting to be as inclusive as possible. Like Jay and I kind of had an initial agreement. It was like, okay, let's make sure we have to have like so many thumbs up to let a new person in. 
And then it was the same thing with DAOs where you're chasing people who aren't even paying attention to give a thumbs up. And it's like, okay, this isn't going to work. Um, and so for that, I realized you have to have kind of a transparency, not permission, where like the leadership and the, you know, the methods that companies use are fairly efficient. It's just the top-down ownership that's bad. So if you have bottom-up accountability, that would be better. So those are some of the, the kind of high-level conclusions I came to. And then just from seeing how a Twitter handled it, I mean, obviously they had some distractions, but it was very interesting that they did not want the space to come to a consensus. They specifically asked, when they asked for proposals, to have each proposal be opinionated and each proposal to have a clear vision of what it said, because you can't really build something by consensus. It's, it's a good idea to check for concerns. It's a good idea to gather all that information, but you can't design something by consensus. So everybody had to give their own separate opinionated thing. Um, so, you know, Jay's was very opinionated about UCAN and identity and identity first, and it was very specific. Um, and so I thought that was interesting as, as a result. Um, so I don't want to go on uh, too long about it. I want to hear what people have to say. Um, but it is definitely a very positive experience for me. I met a lot of really cool people. And just in response to what you said, Rabble, about the money comes from the big guys, and that's where you get the polish money. That is true. But also it became very clear that people don't only spend effort based on money. And there's a very, again, I'll use that word durable effort that's more values-based that you, know, you find the money from somewhere, you find a team from somewhere, but I feel that the relationships and the efforts have a life independent of the official corporate entities. And I think that life is continuing right now. Thank you all so much for getting us started so beautifully. For the next phase, I'm going to turn it over to Skylar. She'll take the lead on on uh, seeding some discussion among our panelists, get you know some more conversation among them happening. Skylar, take it away. Yeah, I just want to thank you guys so much for that wonderful introduction. You guys all have some really great backgrounds and super interesting stories that have kind of led you to be on these platforms today. If you guys could give me just like an example of one design decision in the projects that you guys are working on that kind of differs from the mainstream social media platforms and I guess kind of what the reasons were for doing it that way? So I think one interesting thing to start with is that moderation has come up a few times. When you work on something, it tends to run away from what your vision was. And sometimes even a vision is incomplete. And it was, in my case, on both accounts, the ActivityPub. Uh, one of the things I was really surprised by, so sometimes people have an impression of ActivityPub because they've seen Mastodon and they think, oh, well, ActivityPub is, you know, it's a it's a protocol for decentralized Twitter-like things. And, and it really isn't. If anything, it resembles email and Facebook more. And I think Golda's comment, by the way, about centralization, it's very interesting. And email being a good example, and I 100% agree. I often say that we have to look, every time you're working on a decentralized system, you have to look at email and XMPP of two systems that fell apart effectively, right? For two different reasons. I ran my own email server until last year and I finally stopped. And the reason is I can't deliver to almost anybody because I, uh, Gmail and Hotmail and all sorts of things, they, they all re reject my messages surprisingly, like without, without any explanation, right? And you're just speaking to the void. And occasionally you'll run into somebody who says, well, I managed to get my messages through. And I'm like, all right, buddy. What's interesting is that even the way that the Federated Social Web currently 
so me working on ActivityPub, I think sometimes people assume that I'm very in alignment with all the directions of what people currently see as ActivityPub, um, which is not necessarily all the things that the spec encoded, because the spec doesn't have as strong of opinions as sometimes people think. Um, so for instance, the moderation approaches, there was one a moderation thing added to ActivityPub, and that was block. And we never thought it was particularly good, but we had it there as the, okay, well, everybody... You know, like block is a thing you have when you don't have anything else. So like, we'll put that in there. Uh, one of the things that I was really surprised about was how instances became very important on uh, um, as a, the source of community on the Fediverse. And uh, I think that's wrong. Um, the If you really want to be able to make these things scale up, then you should assume that they are as peer-to-peer -peer as possible where everybody's on their own node. So saying let's block a node and let's take a look at which nodes have all of the good people and bad people on it. Well, imagine if everybody was self-hosting, that just doesn't work. Then you're just, it's equivalent to uh, moderating on the individual level. So you can very easily dismiss that group categorization as something that cannot scale. It's impossible. Um, and on the flip side of that, what you, but you still do see some Mastodon and ActivityPub are still at the, the 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 size where the Mastodon style moderation is still working to some degree, and one of the and and I don't want to completely dismiss it, but you can see the 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 opposing side of that as um, Twitter and you know Elon Musk is pushing really hard right now on the the global town square right we're building the global town square what a bunch of effing BS. There's no such thing as the global town square. It does not exist. End of story. Doesn't exist. And the closest that it ever came to existing without completely collapsing was pre-Musk Twitter. And it will never exist again, mm -hmm. is my prediction. We will never see something that has as much effort as it took to be able to attempt to make that work as Twitter had done. There, I don't perceive that there's a likely possibility that we will see that many resources summoned to try to do that again. Um, so we should assume that a global town square is mostly off the table. And that's fine, because most of our lives do not exist in a global town square. Um, a number of people in this group, I talk to regularly in group communication, and we talk in communities. And can, anytime somebody says the global community, they're also wrong, because there is no such thing as the global community. There are communities, right? Communities are organic and consensually uh, operated structures that um, operate off of, you know, kind of rough consensus to some degree, right? And even when those communities form um, a more structured consensus, as in terms of here are our, our, our rules that govern us as a community, what you will see is that those rules are not as strong as um, the willingness of the community to continue to consider itself a community. This is one of the biggest differences I think that we are taking is that we are pushing this line very hard and sprightly right now, more than I think any other project. Um, one of the one of the things that I think, and I, I and I will I will call out actually AT at the moment for I think having a big challenge here because there's a a lot of a lot of uh, um, stuff happening right now about who is allowed or you know how do we choose to to moderate this stuff as in terms of what's happening on Blue Sky, and I think that the Blue Sky developers are trying very hard to address this, and I think that that's sensible, and I'm not. Um, hating on this because I think that the models that everybody currently has are wrong. 100% all the groups. And Sprightly is, I think, working and maybe is moving closest in the direction of considering how communities actually are structured out of anybody. And it's going to take a lot of work for us to get there. And I've, But I think that um, the 
one of one of the interesting things that we've seen, I'm going to get computer science-y for a moment here. One of the big interesting divisions we've seen between um, these the the two kind of um, I'm going to say competing paradigms, though they're not quite uh, um, that are happening are um, let's say the secure scuttlebutt like shared heap, almost like you know like a giant tuple space where everybody's dumping things in and you get some of, you try to find and get some of the messages that are relevant to you and, and blue sky is in many ways attempting to do that type of thing and then the actor model which are directed messages um i think there's some op- interesting opportunities as in terms of the intersection between these spaces um and and it's one of the uh, uh rabble said that all these things are been very highly based off of um, secure scuttlebutt. And I think that that's true and not true. I think that there is a, um, I certainly think that there's, um, but I think that there's a large number of dissemination of these these core components. Um, but what I would really like to murder is the idea of um, global moderation. It's dead. And the idea that you host a community. I'm sorry, Nathan, I know you host this social.coop. I don't believe it works as in terms of trying to bridge communities together. And I'm gonna give one final thing that hints as terms of why um, I, I think let's the Mastodon flavored version of ActivityPub won't end up working, which is that um, this may start to sound like um, I'm, I'm saying that um, that I'm dismissing moderation tooling because I'm actually not. I'm, a- I'm actually talking about consensually constructed governance structures. Um, and, um, and, and there have always been governance structures on the internet. Um, before we had any of this social media stuff that we currently have, remember we had things like jo- a lot of internet forums, a bunch of PHPDB forums that people would host. You know, They would get some shared hosting provider and they'd throw it on there and them and their friends. And sure, your identity didn't connect from place to place, but it was in many ways much more decentralized than the stuff that we have right now. Right? Um, even even anybody in this room's tech, right? Um, and um, and one of the um, and and one of the things that was really interesting about that is that you see uh, Musk talking about we're the global town square, and we're free speech absolutists, and also um, we're not going to let anybody do anything bad on this platform, and those are completely in contradiction. It's just one hundred percent like it's like a very basic logic. Right, that these are in contradiction, and um, and so if we look back at those PHP BB forums, and somebody talks about, oh, I'm a free speech absolutist and stuff like that. Well, one of the interesting things about that is that every one of those, if anybody can make their own forum or community with those PHP BB forums, that that, that was actually that's actually pretty great. You know, people can create their own forums and they can participate. Same thing with mailing lists, right? which did have more portable identities because you could use the same email address from mailing list to mailing list. All of those things were moderated. Every, every community I ever participated in, any one of those things, they had, they had a sense of what was allowed and what was not allowed. There was not an internet-sized consensus level of what was not allowed and not allowed. Um, but in many ways, it worked much better. But there is no such thing as... Uh, um, there's, there's certainly no such thing as uh, a global town square and saying we're going to have free speech on a global town square is um, it, it's just become a code word for um, hard right speech on, on, in, on a global space um, because that's what uh, everything ends up 
devolving into in a certain sense. Um, and anyway, that's my that's the end of my ranting on that. I've, I realize I've taken up a lot of time. You're listening to Looks Like New, a show that asks old questions about new tech. Stick with us. We'll be back soon. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio. We've been speaking with Christine Lemmerweber, Ravel, and Golda Velez about the origin stories of open social media. Christine, you're, you're very much right that, you know, what, what we're looking at here is like um, the biggest problem we have to solve is the moderation problem. The biggest problem we have to solve is if this space isn't a shopping mall owned by a single corporation, but instead is something we're holding in common, how do we make a well-governed commons? Because we don't want a single government like happens in China to set all the rules of speech and behavior. And we've seen major problems with setting those rules in the case of a single company handling it. And so we're building a whole series of protocols and communities and spaces by which it's not a single unified space. And this is an argument I got into with Jack Dorsey when he was talking about whether or not to ban Donald Trump's account in the 2016 election. And my answer was twofold. One, absolutely you should ban Donald Trump's account. And you can't ban Donald Trump's account because Twitter is, is controlled by the stock market and it'll get deleted. And the central problem isn't do you ban one person's account the central problem is that you are attempting to create a single space for the entire world and so we have collapsing social contexts and we have collapsing communities where we're saying the the rules for public communication the rules for culture and values and behavior are going to be this weird intersection of idealistic new left San Francisco values with a kill switch from Wall Street. So like, you can do anything you want that's this progressive descendants of the new left, progressive like communitarian ideas, as long as uh, you realize that at any time you cross a line, Wall Street will remove you and take over your platform and kill it, basically kill it. And which is which is what eventually happened with Elon Musk. He didn't just on his own take over Twitter. He had it funded by Wall Street. He got a tremendous amount of loans, a tremendous amount of financial backing. There was an entire financial industry that said, we believe in taking tremendous risk so that we can take over Twitter. And they, they thought they could take it over. And obviously, they failed. So what we're believing, our giant project, as it were, is that we can construct a set of different values, a set of different systems by which we create community governance around spam, around trust, around safety, around moderation, about what you see and build into the technology and the practice of using these systems, those boundaries. Because if we don't have the ability to enforce boundaries, the ability to say, this is our community and this is the behavior in it, and this is this other one, then it doesn't work. We get 
unhealthy actors coming in. And, and so the Fediverse does that on a server level. Individuals can block people, but a lot of the real trust and safety happens by delegating it to server admins who do this unpaid for tremendously complicated social labor. And so we've taken the social labor that was paid for by companies in a closed way that we didn't like, and now we've made it collectively held, but we're still not paying these people for this work. And in fact, we've now, we've liberated the rules of moderation and provided it mostly to women who are doing unpaid social labor to handle it. And we've got no system to compensate them for that work, even though it's the central work that makes everything happen. So we need to design systems that both build the ability to enforce these rules, define these rules, give people cultural clues so that they know what the rules are in the spaces they're participating in, and compensate people for that labor. So one of the things we're seeing with the current Reddit strikes is the mods who are not compensated for their labor, but it's a tremendous amount of labor, are rebelling against Reddit. And they're rebelling against Reddit because third-party apps, because uh, Reddit's are trying to make the system palatable for advertising. And so we need to find other economic models to support these organizations, these projects, this labor, and we need to design systems that stop spam. And if we don't design effective systems that stop spam, people will revert to using centralized systems. So we even see this in the fight inside Blue Sky right now, where the Blue Sky team is deeply committed to decentralization, deeply committed to open protocols. And the Blue Sky early adopter user desperately wants centralized solutions for trust and safety. And so that's the big conflict that exists in Blue Sky right now. And we have models for how this open system will work, but we don't have solutions. And to me, that's going to define whether or not these platforms are successful. Yeah, yeah. really well said, Rob. I, I, it's so funny. I don't want to be glib, but um, that's actually, we did switch from that. So we actually switched. I don't know if you know, Nathan, from What's Cooking to actually, we just finished building a gig platform owned by the workers to do content moderation. <laughs> We, we just built it on, on human protocol. We have some people uh, in Myanmar, in, in Afghanistan, in uh, Africa, and a number of places who are ready to work. And we actually just finished the onboarding for it. And I was talking to Darius um, at RightsCon about doing it for some of the servers on the Fediverse. So not to say, oh, yeah, it's solved. Obviously, you need the moderators on the server who have all the context. But I, I do agree that this is a core problem. And, and it definitely did cause my design thinking to change. And when I say we, I mean the startup that I advise, which is a public benefit corporation owned by the people in it. My day job is actually for Ceramic that does another type of decentralized storage and, and streams of data that can be shared. But going back to that, so I agree completely that you can't do it globally. And I think there's space for safe ecosystems and spaces that are are strongly opinionated and moderated. But also as a risk engineer, I think you need to decouple the signal and the models. And so the other piece that I've been working with, uh, you guys know Harlan, uh, Trustgraph, and um, I talked a little bit to, to Chris Cobley, who did Trustnet, though he's not really working on that right now, and a couple of other people like in the, the rebooting the web of trust space to kind of have a minimal model to try to have a protocol for trust that is not centralized, that I don't own, that nobody owns. And, and it could be 
an extension to ActivityPub, but, but right now what we have is just a very sort of a message in a bottle format, which is just a signed claim with a sort of a almost a semantic webby style, like a subject, uh, you know, subject claim object with a source, a few other fields that we felt were essential. Um, we're trying to, you know, purpose that in a couple of different spaces of these signed claims that are immutable, can sit anywhere. Um, if we put them on ceramic, you can actually mutate them even though they're content addressed. But anyway, the idea of having these linked trust claims that that nobody owns, but everybody can write. And so that's the signal that's out there. And then anybody can say, oh, well, I don't trust all you guys who are putting those trust claims. I only trust Christina and anybody she trusts two hops away. And that's it. Those are the only ones I'm going to consume for my thing. So you have maybe a global stream of signal, but people might roll it up in quite different ways and, and consume that signal and make predictions over that signal in different ways. And I could say, I just want a model that predicts if I'm going to click on a thing. So I only get stuff I'm interested in. Just track everything I do and have all this data and predict if I'm going to click and give me stuff that I would click on. Give me clickbait. You know, you could have a model that did that. You know, you could have different models over the signal. And I think, again, that goes back to identity, which is so fundamental. If you don't have cryptographic signatures, you have a platform. Because if you don't have somebody signing, this is my thing, I own it, I said it, then how do I know you said it? Facebook says so? Like, who's Facebook? So you do have to have the, the DIDs, the cryptographic signatures, where I signed this thing with my PGP key or with my DID or however I signed it. Here's this bit of data I signed that says a thing about a thing. And here's all these bits of data everywhere. Now we can make models over. Now we need to make it really easy for people to consume those, to create those protected opinionated spaces that maybe a moderator just tells an AI, hey, make this space safe for such and such people. AI use this thing to do it. I don't care. You know, <laughs> maybe that's how it's going to happen. But I think you need both those levels. So that is actually what I've been working on uh, is, is both of those levels. And we're, we're trying to figure it out. And I would love to talk to you guys later about how it should work. You know, all of you guys have really mentioned the large role of community in all these spaces, and ultimately they are social civic spaces. And I just want to ask you guys how these communities have helped define the designs of your platforms. One of the things I've particularly noticed is that Macedon and um, Blue Sky 2 both have a really strong queer presence. And I guess like what has led these queer groups or other marginalized groups to have such a large involvement in these spaces that it's almost become an integral part with these spaces. So in between the time of StatusNet and ActivityPub, there was a period where um, a lot of the stuff that was happening in the OStatus space became very unappealing to me in terms of like it's kind of well, let's say kind of the, the cultural structure of it. And one of the things that did get me um, it was Amy Guy who convinced me to join Mastodon, which then it, it got me starting to talk to the Mastodon developers and saying, hey, some of our stuff solves some of the problems you're having. It was that the Fediverse was much more queer. And at the time, Mastodon was actually using OStatus. They moved over to ActivityPub, um, partly because of the needs of their users. So one of the things that happened was Mastodon had rolled out um, you know, users wanted direct messages. And one of the things that happened at that time was that um, you had a lot of queer people coming from Twitter who felt that they were not being safely protected on Twitter from harassment and abuse, and sometimes were even getting moderated against by kind of automated, usually, uh, moderation decisions that were not understanding what they were saying on Twitter. And one of the problems that happened at that time was that Mastodon users wanted direct messages, but um, 
OSTATUS didn't really support that correctly. So Mastodon hacked it so that they were like, okay, well, because they were using this thing called pub sub hubbub. And what they did was they said, well, we should just blast things out to a bunch of nodes. And so they, what they would say is, okay, well, we're going to blast things out to all the nodes, but tell some nodes to not look at the message, right? And so you had some very vulnerable queer users who were sending direct messages and their stuff was being picked up by, let's say, some very anti-queer instances and like, you know, it's being scraped. And so the users were really upset. And ActivityPub was trying to address uh, a portion of the private messaging case. It did not address uh, your your instance administrator could see what you were saying, but it was better than things going completely undirected to, to everyone and just certain people being told, shh, don't look at it, right? But part of the defense that the Fediverse had was, even though the instance moderation stuff is imperfect, it allowed a certain amount of shielding from some of that stuff. And it hasn't been enough. Um, but it is allowed for, I think, good kind of vibes and feels. Blue Sky is in a, currently in a position where they're also having kind of an initial set of feels from users from not having scaled up quite as far as they could be. By doing invite only results in usually like all the people you really want to show up in the early, like the enthusiasts of social media stuff to show up really early. Um, but that only lasts for a certain amount of time. Um, all of us as our things scale up are on kind of, in a certain sense, a ticking time bomb as in terms of being able to figure out what happens when the people who are not our initial community show up. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in there. I, I actually wrote an, an essay a few weeks ago about the utopia of new online communities. And so initially, you are very scoped to who joins. Blue Sky felt like a utopia, but so does Scuttlebutt, and so did the Fediverse, and so did Twitter itself. Every one of these feels like a utopia because you get a smaller group of like-minded folks. And, and in particular, in the queer community, there's a de desperate need for separate space. There's a, a need to be able to create space where we can express ourselves in ways that are dangerous to the larger world. And you are taught from a very young age that if you express yourself honestly and openly, it is very dangerous. It is socially dangerous. It is physically dangerous. And there have been hundreds of years of these safe spaces that have been created that are separate and apart with different sets of social norms. And so as people came online, there was a stronger need to find that community than exists elsewhere. Because so many people, the, the, the social cost of leaving your home and moving to a big city and finding where the, you know, appropriate bars are so that you can meet people, so that you can make connections, so that you construct a new chosen family, that is a very high bar to enter. And so by making it online, making it social, it lowered that bar. So the reason that trans, the trans community has been able to come out so much more quickly than happened with just queer liberation or gay, gay and lesbian liberation is because the internet facilitated it to work much faster. And we see this not just in online communities, you see it with the physical communities. Queer community looks for spaces that are, you know, empty spaces, spaces that are neglected, spaces that can be reclaimed, spaces that can be reopened. And so one of the things we're seeing in these digital spaces is that same process. But we also see the same dynamic that goes on in physical spaces where queer neighborhoods become cool places to hang out. They become gentrified. And so we go into these communities, we make them safe, we design them, we build them up, and then we want acceptance. And so we open it up and then we don't have that space anymore. And so this is why I think that we keep talking about 
or at least I keep talking about boundaries, being able to have a sense of space and being able to say, this is, this is the norms of this space. This is separate from a larger community of world. And in doing that, I think we maybe can design things better in the future. And it's why there are so many queer people building, designing, using, and adopting these protocols is because we have a much deeper need for it. And it's been part of an identity that's existed for a long time. So maybe I'll, I'll leave it at that. But it's like, you can't separate the emergence of digital communities from the process of queer community construction and, and liberation. Like the, the two are intimately connected. And it's been an incredibly powerful tool, but it has a double-edged sword because you then build every, bring everybody on there and you bring people who aren't members of the community and they, they can bring tremendous amount of violence and abuse because we've made our communities visible. You no longer have to travel to a big city and go to a specific neighborhood and walk into, you know, under a rainbow flag into a specific bar to inject yourself into these communities and these conversations. No, that that's really powerful. I'll, I'll I'll be very quick. I just I don't really have a lot to say about the beauty of those communities, but I just want to give a little bit of the converse reason why big spaces can be important. And uh, again, it's, you know, one of my contacts in Myanmar basically told me that well, you know, the factories are pretty dangerous, and if you get injured in a factory, generally they're not going to pay you any compensation unless your story goes viral on social media. So the thing is that ability to go viral, that ability to get a story out from a very, very marginalized, isolated person is part of the power of, of the broader platform. And why, even though I love the safe small spaces, why there's also a value to some kind of broader interchange that then makes people not isolated who don't maybe belong to, to a particular community. And one of the reasons why, for example, Black Twitter for the most part, has not been interested in Mastodon is because part of what they are looking for is a platform that lets them both have a discussion and create cultural norms and, and talk about what's going on, but also push it virally out to their own community in the larger world. And so the decisions that exist in the Fediverse which come from the needs of the queer community do not serve the needs of Black Twitter and so that is part of why they're more excited about Blue Sky. Some of it's just cultural who joins, but partially because it offers the promise of being able to contest the larger public sphere. If you are interested in delving deeper into open social media, we invite you to attend our further events in the series. You can find out more on our website, colorado.edu slash lab slash medlab. You've been listening to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. We've been speaking with Christine Lemmerweber, Rabble, and Golda Velez. I'm Skylar Hugh, today's host of Looks Like New, a production of CU's Media Economies Design Lab. This show is produced in-house by myself, and I hope you'll join us for another conversation next month.